0: Hi there, we're listening to Burn the Boats. Secret legal theory that lets mag extremism spread like a virus. She's talking about uh, these little clubs for babies. And uh, turns them into Christian nationalists.
1: And organizations that we can group into category. There are policy groups. Theory, I'm just going to throw out a few names, but this is by no means comprehensive. I'm thinking about the Heritage Foundation and the Family Research Council and the American Family Association. There are right-wing um, legal advocacy groups, such as the Federalist Society, um, which grooms and, and promotes candidates for the courts. There are groups like um, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a kind of legal uh, juggernaut of the religious right. And they're behind a lot of the uh, legal efforts to degrade uh, the principle of separation of church and state and, and promote the, the version of Christianity that they prefer over every other. Um, there are groups like uh, networking organizations like the Council for National Policy that bring together the leaders of a lot of the different organizations with the deep-pocketed funders, the people who have the money to sort of keep the keep it all going. There are right-wing think tanks like the Claremont Institute. Which is an anti-democracy think tank um, doesn't neatly fall within the sort of Christian nationalist movement um, uh, rubric, but kind and but works sort of within that movement in certain ways. And then you have think tanks that um, do a, a, a sort of more um, you know religious in their orientation. Um, there are ne- uh, there are training institutes like the Leadership uh, Institute, which Trains and and helps promote uh, different uh, both religious leaders and political leaders. Um, and then there's a sort of vast far right messaging sphere that does a terrific job of, of pastoral organizations. I forgot to mention, but that's very important. It plays an enormous role in drawing these sort of um, right leaning or conservative leaning pastors into networks and then, you know, convinces them that they've got to get their congregations out to vote for the supposedly biblical biblical candidates or candidates who will do what movement leaders want them to do. And um, so this, um, this this deep infrastructure is very politics-focused, and I think it's really important to know a little bit about how that works so that when we see stuff in the news, we can actually link it to different features of that network.
2: Yeah, it's almost you almost get the sense that it's like a tree. What we see is vis- is visible above the ground, but there's there's a very deep root system that most people may not be aware of. And uh, then I start to question like when I, I've done many videos, I, I do social commentary and kind of explainer videos, video essays, and things like that online. So I've done many videos around topics that are you know either about this, or sort of tangential topics. Um, and it just seems like there's, it's just a never ending stream that you pull and pull and pull and there's just always more to it than what you think. And there's absolutely no way that you could possibly, I mean, you did a, an excellent job in your book kind of touching on each of these facets of this movement. Um, but th- it seems, there seems to almost be no end
1: you to know, the see, organization. Of- <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a, it's very well funded. And I think when we're analyzing the movement it's really helpful to distinguish p- between the leaders and the followers of the movement mm. so when you're talking about the followers you're talking about a very wide range of people with different interests and ideas and when a lot of them cast their vote say for the candidate who promises to defend the traditional family or protect the babies they're not really like, you know arguing for major changes in the way our government is run they're really making a kind of statement about what they value themselves and their identity. So their identity is sort of as um, you know, you. They're more like you know, their affiliations with the larger movement may be quite loose. But when they're talking about the leaders of the movement, the leaders of these organizations uh, and different pieces of the infrastructure, they're all about power, um, public mo- access to public money, uh, policies that privilege their faith and uh, and the policies that you know, very importantly, um, privilege the funders who are, you know, giving uh, huge amounts of money to the organization. Some of these these funders are really important to understand because a lot of them, I think, are as motivated, if not more motivated, by right wing economic policy than
0: and uh, less concerned four, about six, right
1: three. what right wing positions in so called culture war. They want. You know, a lot of them are members of the extended plutocratic families and have Liberality, accumulated enormous amounts up. of wealth. And they want policies that privilege the accumulation of wealth. So they want, you know, no taxes or low taxes for the rich, minimal regulation of business, um, minimal regulation that would um, uh, compel uh, people to respect the environment or, or um, they, they want uh, to erode the rights of the workforce. Um, and, and all that. But how do you get the rank and file to vote for policies that are actually going to harm them, not, not help them? You mm-hmm. dangle the culture wars as these little right. shiny baubles in front of their right. eyes and get them all worried about a trans kid or, you know, tell them that, you know, there's something called abortion after birth, which there isn't. Um, but they, you know, promote these kinds of um, lies about that. Mm-hmm. in order to get them really anxious about those issues. And then they get them to vote for those candidates. They know very well if you can get people to vote on two or three issues, you can control their vote.
0: hmm
1: absolutely. Well, it occurs to me, as I said, I grew
2: up in the evangelical movement, very deeply steeped in the evangelical movement. My father was a minister. My parents were not particularly political, so I didn't grow up with this, this type of nationalism. But it was around us. There were always people who were trying to sort of pull us in to this world in one way or another, and as I said, of course, being black, that my experience of it was a lot different, and my lens of all of this is, is a little bit different, but it occurs to me just kind of understanding, knowing how the evangelical world functions, how those church functions, how those churches function versus mainline churches. With a mainline church, you have an institution that exists as a church that's been built it's probably existed over many many years you have pastors that come and cycle through and the congregation is loyal to that that body that church body versus an evangelical paradigm where you would have a pastor who who himself usually a man who himself would establish a church and therefore that congregation is loyal to that pastor and which breeds oftentimes cultures of uh, cults of personality. So we're gonna find one charismatic figure that is central to this whole thing, and we are here out of devotion to him. And what he says is these are edicts that are being issued from on high. He is the person closest to God. So it occurs to me that that framework that an evangelical church member or a Christian would have for understanding their relationship to uh, clergy uh, would be very similar to the relationship that um, that a you know let's say a MAGA Republican would have to Donald Trump himself, it is there's there's a, a similarity there to me, and to a lot of people that is very very clear. And maybe that possibly that is one of the reasons. Likely, that's one of the reasons that someone like Trump or or you know a politician who maybe is not even the most religious or spiritual person, because I don't think Donald Trump's faith really ran very deep before uh he before uh he became a politician uh but it obviously there was something in the the adherence to this um uh, this mindset there was something in them that attracted him and there was something in in him that attracted them there was there was a magnetic attraction that happened um and so what you're saying here is that The the rich and powerful are financially motivated to do what they are doing. Um, And the the adherence to these movements are oftentimes motivated uh, by altruistic uh, things such as their belief system Mm -hmm. and their values. Are there points at which those things intersect? Do they cross? Do we have people like, you know, I look at people like Josh Hawley or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. Uh, Do you feel that it's always this sort of cynical exploitation? of the the so-called proletariat or the the believers? Is it always exploitative or are there politicians involved in this movement who truly are believers as well?
1: I think some are believers and and some, I would question, look, we can't know it's in people's hearts and we can't know to the extent that they're motivated by both power and belief. But often those two things have a a funny way of justifying themselves, especially Mm. when power and money are involved, people. Often Mm -hmm. sort of see that it's in my self interest, but they see that it's also, they they perceive that it's also in society's self self interest. You know, you mentioned something about, you know, growing up with a black, uh, your, your father was a pastor and growing up in the black church. And something that I think is important to, or I'd like to talk about is the fact that in recent years, some of the more, I would say, astute and seasoned religious right leaders, people like Ralph Reed, making a huge effort to include uh, pastors of color into their mm-hmm. networks, um, and particularly uh, they're focused on Latino pastors um, uh, um, who are, in, in some instances, uh, charismatic uh, or neo-charismatic and Pentecostal, which follows a trajectory of what's happening in uh, large parts of Latin America, where Catholicism is sort of on the wane and Anacostalism or neo-charismatic faith is on the rise. So, you know, I've attended some of these gatherings that target um, Latino pastors, and I went to this one in Southern California. It was about four hundred. It was a mega church in um, in Chula Vista. There were about four hundred Latino pastors and their families. The speakers were, you know, some of them spoke English through translators, and others just spoke Spanish. And they were there to sort of draw in these pastors and get them to get political. And they said things like, you know, the homosexual agenda is ruining our countries, ruining our families. They passed out um, sheets of information. They said they're teaching all this stuff in public schools. They showed all this sort of, it was a bizarre mashup of um, graphics and text that allege things that are being taught in sex education classes at the K-3 through level. Um, and and I, I mean I found this worksheet alarming because I have two children and I don't want them to learn stuff that's um, unscientific or inappropriate or age inappropriate. So I had to do a little fact checking and I called all of these different you know school districts to see like look look through their sex ed classes and nothing in the in the material was being taught either in the manner in which it suggested it was taught, and much of it was not being taught anywhere in any public school at all. But they get people really worried about this stuff, and then they say you've got to vote your biblical values, you've got to get your people to vote their biblical values. Um, And then they actually um, had a sheet where they named politicians and said, you know, these Republicans you should vote for because they support, support... you know, a biblical agenda, and then there were a couple on the sheet that said you can't vote for these because, you know, they you know, there's they don't support that, and they both happened to be uh, Democrats. So uh, it's very, um, you know, they've they've managed managed to shift the Latino vote in substantial ways between 2016 and 2020. Trump gained eight to ten points among Latino voters nationwide. And they concentrate a lot of this messaging in swing districts, in swing states that are critical in election cycles. So in certain parts of Florida, certain parts of Texas, you know, if you can swing a district, you can, if it's the right district at the right time, you can actually swing a state and that could swing an election. So um, it complicates a lot of the picture. A lot of people um characterize the Christian naturalist movement as a white movement. Um and certainly I think for many of the people in the rank and file who are white, it is an implicitly white movement because for them it involves recovering a nation that was supposedly once both Christian and <laughs> and as they like to think of it, all white. And uh, leaders of the movement certainly paper over the ways that reactionary religion uh and racism tend to reinforce one another and Racist conspiracies and ideas are, they suffuse the movement, uh, through, in, in, many different ways. I mean, I, I have attended a few of these reawaken America tours that are sort of traveling Christian nationalist roadshow put on Mike Flynn and one of the Trump, uh, uh, sons is always there, often there, um, uh, Roger Stone and a whole bunch of other sort of, of Trump's most devoted supporters are organizing the event and attend the event. And you hear every racist conspiracy you can possibly imagine. The great replacement, this idea that liberals or, you know, the left, or as they say, the communist left is everyone to the left of them is a communist. They say they're trying to kill off real Americans and replace them with undeserving people of color, immigrants, whatever. We um, hear all kinds of Crazy. and you actually hear sometimes this last Reawaken America tour that I attended in Las Vegas. I heard some really disgraceful messaging from the, you know, from the stage that I would not repeat here. Um, uh, so there's, you know, and then some of the people affiliated with the Claremont Institute, which is this anti-democracy think tank, um, are sort of vectors and repositories for all kinds of racial hate. And of course, on the policy side, the movement is driving support for politicians that are supporting race-based gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the like. So, these, um, so, so in this way, the movement, you know, like racism and the movement is inextricably linked. But again, leaders of the movement can see the demographic future very clearly, and they know that the movement will not survive if it remains all white. So they're engaging in that outreach, um, and they have been successful in some, in some areas. Hmm. Yeah,
2: it's, it's, it's hard, you know, I will, I will say as a person, as is a black person, not to see it as an explicitly, um, I would say a white supremacist movement, a movement that is inclined to maintain a certain supremacy. Um, and it's obviously, um, I guess a classist movement that exploits the, the populist message. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know that, that, that framing it in that way around race can sometimes be reductive because obviously, uh, the tent is, is, is large. And I grew up around a lot of Republican, uh, black, you know, black Republicans. And so, you know, I know that they exist, I know that they're out there, and sometimes they can be the most uh, virulent supporters of of this type of thing. But it just occurs to me when you, you know, you mentioned the Trump sons and things showing up at these meetings and, you know, some of these folks that, that, that lead these movements that very clearly are not terribly religious, they are not specifically, at least not evangelical in their religion. Uh, that these environments, and I've seen some clips of these 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 uh, gatherings that that you're talking about, um, that they have a very evangelical kind of fervor about them.
1: Oh, and so people they, are wearing. There's a lot of religious nationalism from the stage, yeah. expressions of it, and if you look at the T-shirts, there's a lot of you know <clears throat> biblical passages, and you know I think a lot of these folks didn't identify as religious a few years ago, yeah. frankly. The but then they see the Trump, their hero, who he speaks to them. Supposedly they think he speaks to the common man. And when he appears, he's PM got PM Mark Burns PM to his, PM his PM right and he's PM got Robert Jeffers to his left, these two very political preachers who are espouting this religious nationalism and tying it to ATS Trump. And, and, and so the people see that and they think, oh, well, that's the right identity to seven, take seven, on because that's part of this. And the reason Trump does it This sort of sanctimony surrounding himself by these holy men is its classic uh, religious nationalist authoritarian stuff. He's doing it to bubble wrap himself in sanctimony Mm -hmm. to um, prevent any sort of investigation or criticism of his amorality, of his corruption, of his criminality, his nepotism and his cronyism. Yep. But this is something that religious nationalist leaders do around the world, whether we're talking about Erdogan in Turkey, um, um, we've seen it uh, Modi in India, we're seeing some of that stuff, we're seeing this when you uh, look at leaders in thinner, r- places like Iran, uh, when these, these leaders bind themselves to noon. reactionary figures in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of government, mm-hmm. then religious is nationalism is a great tool for them. Yeah, it's when you speak of that that the
2: picture that comes to mind, and and again, I'm I'm not involved in, in evangelicalism anymore. I'm what you'd call probably a, like a deconstructing Christian, barely even could be called a Christian anymore these days. But I'm very much connected to that world because every you know my family and friends are all still in it, and I'm what comes to mind is that that picture that was taken in, um, and I don't even know exactly where it was, but it, there were a group of pastors that had gathered around Trump, and they were all laying hands on him and praying for him, and a visual like that speaks so loudly to uh, the circles that I grew up in, because it, it is, it's a sanctioning, and it's an enveloping, as you said, of him. We are the we are men of God that you trust, and we are giving a sense of spiritual authority to this man, to, to bolster his message, and to, um, you know, basically endorse him from a a spiritual point of view, and that's a very powerful statement to make.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, for the the folks that I grew up with who are not politically sophisticated, who, who really don't, as you said, maybe like one or two issue voters, that's sometimes all that's needed. That's all that's needed is to say, my pastor endorses him, my pastor says he's good, and he's saying all the right things, and he's against the right things, and so therefore I'm going to go and 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 push the button, even for people who are who have not been involved in politics at all, who may not even have been voters before,
1: right? Which, and then a lot of these you know conservative leaning pastors are turning their churches essentially into partisan political cells. I went to. I've been to uh, another event called Faith Wins. They held hundreds of events across the country trying to turn out these pastors. So they I was in this church in uh, Chantilly, Virginia, and dozens of pastors from local area were there. And they're telling them that the church is not a cruise ship. The church is a battleship. They're talking about how important it is to get pastors involved in politics. Uh, and then they spread lies about the election. This was, I believe, in 2021. Um, they said, "Oh, you saw what happened in Arizona." Well, you know what happened in Arizona? This was after a Republican led investigation turned up nothing. He said, "You remember the cyber ninjas? They said, we're going to find all this evidence of uh, illegality." And these Republicans who are you know motivated to find illegality, he said, um, sorry, we, we actually found maybe half dozen or a couple dozen more votes for Biden than we thought. And yet they were still there talking about, you know, there was a a, a fellow there who was billed as an election integrity expert. He was a member of the Trump, former member of the Trump administration. His name is Hogan Gidley. And he was talking about how dead people were voting. And, you know, there was, he said, you saw what happened in Arizona. Well, frankly, most of the pastors perhaps hadn't been reading the news. And and didn't see the news, or maybe they thought it was fake news. I mean, if you can get people to believe that all fact check news is just fake, if you can spread your propaganda in that way and separate people from the facts, it makes them very easy to control. And that's one of the reasons for the spread of conspiracism throughout this movement. It's one of the reasons I find the Reawaken America tours and all the media that sort of thrives on that so deeply, deeply alarming. If you're ready for the great outdoors, make sure your truck is too. alarming.
0: Thanks for listening everyone. I've got a quick break here but I need a favor first. Shows like this depend on your subscriptions to all ingredient boats at checking. I'll have a heartfelt reason Superbeatsheart Arch- superbeatsheart.com Arch- Super Get this exclusive offer only at BoatsBeats.com. Hi, Burn the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Roan. Men's closets are long overdue for a radical reinvention. And really that easy. And go. dotcom slash boat, .com slash boats, and use code BOATS. Trust me, Roan makes choosing what to wear not just easy, but classy and comfortable. That's roan.com/boats.
2: But yeah, I think you know the fracturing of the media. The media landscape also means that people can tune into whatever news affirms the beliefs that they already have, and so it would it would be more difficult, I think, for a movement like this to thrive in the way that it has if we if we still had three news networks like we did when I was growing up, uh, because at some point you're going to have to encounter reality. You're going to have to encounter the truth, but they don't, they literally do not have to hear any truth other than what they want to hear. I mean, they started to tell the truth about what was happening with the election on Fox and people started to drift away to Newsmax <laughs> and to OAN. And, you know, we saw the memos that were happening behind the scenes with Tucker Carlson and others saying, oh my God, you know, we, we can't we can't keep being truthful. We're, we're losing viewers.
1: I know it's really shocking. I mean, I I also think that there's some parts of the media system that are frankly in denial because they've thrived for years on this idea that they should cover, cover both sides with respect as a neutral observer. And it would certainly, you know, make it easier for them if they could do so and stay above the fray. But, but, You know, it's like saying the earth is round, the earth is flat. Discuss. (laughs) You know, when one side is engaged in a war on the truth and the other side is trying to talk about policy in the real world, um, we can't really both sides this. Yeah. You know, when one side is, you know, one of the problems, and it's been quite successful, is that the Republican Party, you know, I go to these conferences, these, you know, road to majority conferences, or they call it pre-vote Stand, they used to call it Values Voters, and um, they portray anyone to the left of them as a communist, um, as a a heretic, godless, you know, they use every word in the book that they can. not as a loyal, like, so So they don't see the Democratic Party as a loyal opposition. You know, the idea used to be a little bit like, we have different ideas about how to get there, but we both basically, we all want the basic, you know, basically the same things we want, a secure prosperous country filled with, you know, happy families that can make ends meet, do you know what I'm saying? Like, that kind of thing is just a complete a breakdown of civil discourse on one side, and on the left i still hear you know at every like talk i give or whatever how can we reach them how can we talk to them how can we draw people out of conspiracism you know my aunt sally or or my father-in-law or or whoever you know started you know now believes in this great placement QAnon, all these kinds of crazy conspiracies that all you know that all roads lead to trump and, uh, you know when when people fall down that rabbit hole those rabbit holes they're, they're often given this idea of Trump as our savior. He's, you know, fighting the good fight. He's fighting on beh- behalf of the white hats or whatever they call it, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. And I still hear, you know, we need to, you know, sympathize with their issues and their concerns. I really do not hear that um, on the right. I just hear uh, mischaracterization after mischaracterization.
2: Mm-hmm. So do you feel like there is a way to, to, draw them in to uh, curtail this or is there is that do you feel like that's a futile conversation
1: i think those conversations are really worth having um for people in your circle still i i I don't think that that's where you should put all of your energies i think the right has done this by the way over five decades through the investment um both money and also um, man and woman power uh, and the infrastructure Uh, uh, among those of us who believe in the principles of pluralism and equality and who seek to preserve our democracy. I think we need to, although there are people who are doing it now, you know, invest in um, shoring up uh, you know, institutions and organizations that promote uh, democracy, uh, they get out the vote. We need to protect the vote. Um, there are, are frankly, you know, I think more of more people in America who believe in equality and pluralism and democracy than people who don't, they vote in disproportionate numbers because they get the churches out to vote.
0: Mm-hmm. So you don't need
1: a majority to win elections, you just need a disproportionately activated minority. Yes. And look at a country where 40 to 50 percent of people don't turn out to vote, uh, and an additional number have their votes essentially stolen from them through race-based gerrymandering, voter suppression, uh, and and all that. You know, it just takes, you know, that minority that you know if a pastor can get ninety percent of his congregation to vote. Oh my gosh, you know those numbers can really make differences, and not just local elections, but you know, collectively in national elections. We can't forget that a lot of politics is local. One of the things the right is doing now with its Moms for Liberty groups and the sort of you know fiction that public schools are. Uh, you know, turning children into little communists is that they're activating people at the local level. It's, it's like the Tea Party all over again. And of course, it's supported by um, infrastructure coming from like the, the movement, the Christian Nationalist movement. You I know, mean, I remember I attended a Family Research Council seminar called a school board boot camp, where they're actually getting their people to do this. Well, if no one else gets activated, then they're going to win. So it's really important to get engaged in local politics, and I think it's worth spending more of your energy sort of doing that. But those conversations with people who you love or people who you've been friends with in the past or are still friends with are, I think, still worth having. Um, it's really helpful to try to find some kind of common ground and then slowly draw people back into reality. Uh, yeah.
2: I'm thankful, as I said, because, you know, being a black person who grew up in this movement, I'm thankful to not have a ton of family members who have been just pulled down into the abyss with this stuff. There are definitely those um, that have been. Uh, But I kind of almost feel for for white folks who grew up in evangelical circles because it is so common. It's so common to have family members who I, I have friends who don't talk to their parents anymore.
1: It's awful. And just it's get just family,
2: family relationships. Yeah, family relationships have been severed over this kind of thing. And I'm thankful I did not grow up in a deeply politicized uh, church environment, um, although, though those folks were always um, around. This movement, I, I know that that one of your aims is to take the focus really off of the, necessarily the cultural or religious aspect of it and really view it through a political lens. Um, and the movement is so well-funded. I watched a YouTube video uh, a, a while back on just like where the funding is is coming from uh, these these groups that um, you know put out this type of messaging and where where they're really getting their funding from. Um, they have always been well funded. I saw a conversation that you had with uh, Frank Schaefer. Oh yeah. Um, the other day, and that's interesting. I would love to talk to him eventually because we, at ORU, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa we had to view his father's films for our humanities courses. We had four years of humanities and every year we would watch his father in those short pants and those grainy crackly films. You know, how, how should we then live? So I'm very, very familiar with Francis Schaeffer but he mentioned that his father, his father's films had been funded by the, the DeVos family, I think. Um, and so there has always been this sort of deep-pocketed, you know, funding of of these movements. Why do? You, and there are billionaires who are funding, you know, a lot of this oh, stuff now. Yeah. Uh, the, the Ben Shapiro organization is being funded by billionaires. That all of it is being funded by billionaires. Why do you think that they have been so successful in attracting um, these these moneyed folks to their their movement? Because I don't think a lot of these. Maybe some of them are 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 truly religious or spiritual people, but a lot of them, I would imagine, are not.
1: Well, again, it's pointing to those, those policies that benefit the accumulation of great wealth. I mean, a lot of the religious right funders, I'm thinking about the DeVos Prince Family Juggernaut, I'm thinking about the Sky Foundation uh, State state Policy Network. They're not just funding, like, religious right initiatives, they're also funding um, organizations like the Freedom Foundation, which seeks to, they're promoting what they call right-to-work laws, they're union-busting. You know, so, so it's that, you know, it's amazing. Like, you know, the religious right is claiming to defend the American family, but they're driving support for politicians and policies that are actually making it much harder for so many families to succeed.
2: So, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's one of those ways that you get people to vote against their own um, self-interest. Um, I, I mean, it, it kind of occurs to me when you talk about the money, where the money comes from, that everyone wants to be a part of a winning team you know everyone wants to be a part of something that is succeeding and that is thriving mm-hmm. do you feel that the money and the funding have maybe been a bit of a catalyst for the success of the movement in and of itself the excitement the fervor around the oh movement gosh. is the money the motivator
1: <gasps> absolutely or- it's so funny um I mean, money can do a lot. It can Mm -hmm. um, give you professional training. It can um, make everything look nice. It can Mm -hmm. come up with really great marketing. You know, I mean, that's one thing the religious right is really good at. They market test stuff. Some of the money comes from McClellan. Um, I mean, we can talk more about the money later, but they invest in messaging, marketing, and they do it, it's interesting, so they, the religious right messaging on abortion, for example, is very, um, uh, responsive to our time. I remember going to this, so was at the Americans united for life gathering and, and, uh, this one woman said to me, a lot of my, my, uh, people, my peers, she was a college student, she said, are really sensitive to issues of equality. So we were saying abortion is discrimination based on their age. And that's an message that we found really resonates with our peer group so they're they're segmenting uh, messaging not just for age group and focusing on the youth but also focusing on grandmothers and mothers and and men and all different sectors um but they're also shifting their messaging like every year on the march for life has different themes and meanwhile on the other side you have the same slogans that have been you know um in these for for decades. And still, so many people understand that message, those fundamental messages that uh, a majority of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, support um, abortion rights in some form. So, um, but but I just think about the marketing and the money that goes into the other side, and especially the money that goes into legal advocacy. It turns out a lot of money to buy a lot of law. The amounts of funding that go through the Federal Society and its related organizations is astounding. A few years ago, uh, Robert O'Hara, Washington Post, did a really spectacular investigation of the Federal Society and its head, Leonard Leo, and talked about, I mean, it was, I believe it was like hundreds of millions of dollars. You'd have to go back and look at the piece, but it's well worth reading. Um, And what they do is they find the perfect plaintiffs they bring the right cases to the right courts at the right moment, and in doing so, they, they, they sort of create these novel legal building blocks that can build up to a very big win. That's what they did with the Good News Club decision back in 2001, and that's what they've continued to do over time. Find the lowest prices of the season on Cozy Essentials and in cold cash at Cold. Over time.
0: Benny and the Jets.
2: Over the motivation for these movements, if there isn't something that you're kicking against, if we can't find a common enemy, it's difficult to um, organize people in this way for this length of time. And the amount of money, the time, of, the, ma- the amount of time, the, the length of time that this has happened, um, it's, it's hard to say that. Uh, the dominant, white, white dominance is not a motivator, is that the dominance of, um, you know, or, or the, the desire to um, squelch a, a particular part of the, the population is not the motivator for this. It would be really hard to make that case, I think. Every authoritarian um, movement needs a scapegoat. Yeah. 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 It would be hard not to see it through that lens. And so obviously there are a group of people that are very much determined to stay in power. And then there are those of us who are not necessarily part of that group who who would find it in our best interest to ally ourselves with that group of people and say, well, you know, the safest position that I can take Mm -hmm. is to stand beside this group and to stand in lockstep with these people. And maybe I can just get a little bit of the spillover and a little bit of the benefit from being a part of this group.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, sexuality issues are the rocket fuel of the movement. It's a movement yes. that insists yes. on gender order,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, LGBTQ identity flies in the face of that and drives them crazy. And now it's like I get, e- you know, I get email from all of the, diff- you know, a lot of the different organizations, and it's like all LGBTQ all the time. Because mm. uh, in particular, like trans issues, because those are the issue. That's the issue that pulls.
0: Oh shit. And the
2: Over
1: time. Hmm.
2: Well, I mean I, it's it's hard not to see this through a le, the lens of of White supremacy, it's hard for me not to see this through the lens of white supremacy. And then I would imagine for someone who is in the LGBTQ community, it's hard not to see this through the lens of, you know, very much of, of like anti, you know, anti gay, whatever, anti uh, trans. Uh, because I feel like uh, it, it's difficult to maintain the fervor, the motivation for these movements if there isn't something that you're kicking against. If we can't find a common enemy. It's difficult to um, organize people in this way for this length of time, and the amount of money, the time of the amount, the amount of time, the the length of time that this has happened. Um, it's it's hard to say that uh, the dominant white white dominance is not a motivator. That the dominance of um, you know, the, or or the the desire to um, squelch a, a particular part of the the uh, population is not the motivator for this. It would be really hard to make that case, I think. I Every mean,
1: authoritarian um, movement needs a scapegoat.
2: Yeah. 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 It would be hard not to say see it through that lens. And so obviously there are a group of people that are very much determined to stay in power. And then there are those of us who are not necessarily part of that group. who who would find it in our best interest to ally ourselves with that group of people and say, well, you know, the safest position that I can take Mm -hmm. is to stand beside this group and to stand in lockstep with these people and maybe I can just get a little bit of the spillover and a little bit of the benefit from being a part of this group.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, sexuality issues are the rocket fuel of the movement. It's a movement that insists on gender order mm -hmm. and uh, LGBTQ identity. Flies in the face of that and drives them crazy. And now like, I get, e- you know, I get emails from all of the, diff- you know, a lot of the different organizations and it's like all LGBTQ all the time because uh, in particular, like trans issues, because those are the issue, that's the issue that pulls well yes. for them in a way yeah. that uh, frankly abortion rights really doesn't. But make no mistake, they're committed to a gender order. And um, in terms of, you know, I think the movement leaders, um, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are smart enough to sort of distance or, or canny enough to distance themselves from overt expressions of racism, but racism is inexplicably bound up with the movement overall. Yeah,
2: I kind of feel bad when I think of the LGBTQ community because now it's like, oh, well, we we knew black people and, and people other people of color, we knew what it was like to be the target, but it's no longer acceptable to make uh, race the issue that it was, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. It's no longer acceptable, and it's not going to fire people up quite as much as you said. It's always kind of there underneath the surface, mm-hmm. but it's we are we are not the clear target, but it is okay to say. I don't, like, I don't like gay marriage. I don't believe in that. I don't feel that trans people should exist. I am, I am actively against these people, and what I am doing is clearly and thoroughly motivated by my opposition to their right to exist. But They can't, they can't say that about us anymore.
1: <laughs> no, it's, true. it's a new target. And then also this the sort of groomer label is incredibly toxic mm-hmm. you know, look for groomers. I mean, we can find lots of them in different sectors of uh, religious organizations. Um, yeah. But to call you know, not just uh, gay people groomers, uh, but also to, um, you know, call any public school teacher who happens to read a book having to do with acceptance and equality, the groomer. I mean, it's it's such a, it actually makes, it inhibits the, the ability to prosecute child, like real child abuse, which is a, a scourge. And, to the victims uh, as well as and I'm talking about the children, child victims of real child abuse, and it's so and it, it, it's it's um you know it's classic authoritarian uh, can we say fascist? Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask it, if you would use that wording, word. <laughs> uh, it's just voting tactics. Right.
2: Yeah, I, it's just kind of crazy to me that in this current age now that that the idea of um, of the exploitation of children can now be politicized. Now, suddenly, this is a huge issue that we just have to deal with. We have to save the children, and oh, my goodness, uh, because I'm guessing that this is all sort of tied to the Jeffrey Epstein thing, and when that happened, then suddenly now we can create this narrative around the left being, you know, going off to their private islands and taking the blood of children and all of these crazy conspiracy theories. But, uh, we, you know, considering the amount of abuse of children that has gone on within the church that has been um, obfuscated, has been covered up, that has been completely, um, you know, just ignored over, over many, many years. And suddenly, you know, we have movies coming out now about saving the children and how important this issue is when it can be tied to a political agenda. And I just, I find that so deeply offensive. Agreed. and it says yeah it just it 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 amazes me that people for whom um morality is supposed to be central could sort of uh, bifurcate this issue in their minds and 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 not take an active position of justice and of of advocacy until there is a political motivation to do so. I, I, I don't think I will
1: ever be able to get my head around that. No, it's always shocking to see that people can say this with a straight face. Um, and and in a in a context you know, a, a big context where they're they're not just, you know, lying, they're proud of their lies. Do you feel that they feel that they are lying that we're talking
2: about the common person, the the you know, the, the churchgoer, we're not talking about politicians or billionaires, do you feel that the person on the ground who's now just, you know, saving the children, do you feel that they are actively lying about their concern
1: for saving the children? Listen, I think propaganda works, and I think that people, a lot of the people who've been drawn into this world of conspiracism, truly believe. Um, but that doesn't excuse their actions, and it certainly doesn't, and, and, and the hate that they may express, listen, there have been all kinds of conspiracies and scape- uh, throughout history and scapegoats of those conspiracies, and there have been leaders throughout history that have perpetrated scapegoats. Um, I mean, let's think about, um, I don't know, the um, or or any other sort of oppressed group that you know people have been uh, over time or throughout history spread spread lies uh, about. I mean it doesn't excuse the abuse that they're subjected to. And, and, and it certainly, I think, you know, some of the leaders certainly know better. They know that exa- some of them know exactly what they're doing. And it's disgraceful. They're doing it just to gain power. And they really just think, well, you know, those folks are just, um, they dehumanize them. They, they don't think of them as, 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 as real people. I, you know, they, um, I, I was, Talking the other day to a, a friend who's Australian, and she said that the indigenous people in Australia, when you know they, um, the white people came and colonized the country, they classified in indigenous people as flora and fauna, not as people, but as part of oh the flora goodness. and fauna of Australia. So I awful. mean, this is just an old story, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> can dehumanize people if you can yeah. call them groomers or if you can see mm-hmm. them all as godless, atheist, communist, right. satanic right. you know then um, then it justifies anything that you'll do to them mm-hmm. it's not just stripping away their rights but also you know putting their lives in peril I'm sure you saw Mike Huckabee uh, yesterday went on um, Trinity Broadcasting Network which is one of the largest religious networks. I, like, I grew up with it, yes. <laughs> so this um, election, next election, if Trump is not allowed to run and win, <laughs> um, this election will be, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, decided by, not by ballots, but by bullets. So it's a last election that will be decided by ballots, not bullets. Um, you know, the threat of physical violence and political violence in particular uh, does not run far from the surface, for surface of this movement. I... Um, recently found uh, an, a book, a lengthy book excerpt by Kevin Slack, who's a professor at Hillsdale College, which is a religious school in Michigan that is very involved in the charter movement and uh, is considered a kind of one of the sort of intellectual nerve centers of uh, movement leaders. And Claremont Institute is this very anti-democracy think tank, so they excerpted a lengthy Piece of his forthcoming book, in which he said, um, I'm paraphrasing here again, uh, it's like it's time for uh, Republicans to ally themselves with the AR 15 crowd. I mean, he's, you know, there are other folks who are um, adjacent or involved in the Claremont Institute who have said similar kinds of things, where one of them actually um, wanted to he, he posited that he should become a warlord when, you know, society breaks down and, uh, you know, it's very pro-militia. I mean, this, this is the threat of political violence, and it, it must be taken seriously. And here's the thing, not all Republicans believe that, but the leadership has not excluded those extremists. There are, I mean, just wasn't a few years ago, about a few years ago, when that kind of language would have been allowed nowhere near yeah. the center of the Republican Party, um, but there is, you know, there have been great shifts over, and very, if you look at it, you know, very rapid shifts if you look at the sweep of history over the last the last decade.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I heard you say in in one interview. I don't remember which interview it was, but I heard you say that this was a this this was a faction of the Republican Party that they basically. Um, this kind of hyper-nationalistic, religious wing of the Republican Party that they felt that they could exploit um, for their gain up to a point, and now this this faction of the party has essentially taken over the party, and now they are unable to function without their sanctioning or their approval.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the latest Republican debate, you know, like how many folks on that debate stage said that they would not pardon Donald Trump if he were convicted. I mean, I think yes. it was maybe one, maybe two. And then if yes. you look at the sort of representative of the sort of Republican party of old, I'm thinking about H.J. Hutchinson off the bat. Um, uh, I mean, like, who is H- Asa Hutchinson? You know, he's perhaps positing himself as a representative of the old guard, and he's polling, what, 2%? Yeah movement has really, um, unfortunately, been taken over by this movement and the, and, and particularly um, other radical factions of the right. Mm-hmm. So I hear, you know, I, I think what I hear
2: you saying is that this is sort of a three-tier situation you have billionaires funders at the top who are motivated by uh, the finances that they want to be able to retain as much of their money as possible they want to be able to influence policy you know maybe environmental policy or policies around regulation of, of corporations or taxes or whatever it is they are protecting their financial interests and so they are kind of the you know Uh, the the thrust of of being able to fund the entire thing. Then you have the politicians who are often having their pockets being lined by these billionaires. And obviously their motivation is to stay in power, is to retain as much power as possible and to self-aggrandize. And then you have the the kind of lowly adherents, and many of them are motivated by um, true ideology. And... uh, this sort of three-tiered system? Uh, am I interpreting this correctly, that this three-tiered system, they basically are working in tandem and and feeding one another and, and propelling this thing uh, forward?
1: That's a, a nice way to think about it. I mean, I think it's really important to see that the politicians know they need religious rights support because that is a giant voter turnout machine. <laughs> if you listen to them talk about the resources that they are going to bring to bear in a, a l- election cycle, it's a number of people that they're gonna get knock on doors and make phone calls, and there have been very sophisticated data initiatives where <laughs> they will actually look at people's um, you know, Facebook feeds and other social media and figure out, oh, are you a, are you a member of NASCAR? Do you follow NASCAR? Um, are you a member of the NRA? And then some other measures, and, and have you ever signed an anti-abortion thing? And if they find those people, they will actually push stuff into their, uh, into their media. You know, mm-hmm. targeted media that will wow. get them to vote a certain way. Um, there was a, an initiative called United and Purpose that has actually did that, and they've described that um, on record, you know, in video. The head of that organization described that on video. So, um, their all the stuff that they used to do was public, and then um, when it got written about, they uh, it, all of a sudden their website went. Blank. Basically, you know, splash page and nothing else. And they they haven't spoken too openly about that. But there is an initiative called Documented that has done a really wonderful job of getting audio from some of these gatherings. Uh, the um